Since we're at the start of a new year, I thought it would be fitting to talk about resolutions. Raise your hand if you have ever taken up a New Year's resolution. I think most everyone here has. For those of you who have taken up a resolution, keep your hands up if you felt that by the end of that year, you were successful in what you set out to do. Hands going down, yeah? Yeah, okay, all right. You can put, for those of you who still have their hands up, you can put them down. Well, in a study done by the University of Scranton, researchers tracked 200 participants over a two-year period. Resolutions ranged from weight loss goals, quitting smoking, to improvement in relationships, all good and healthy goals to pursue. But honestly, if any of you are like me and judging by the hands that went down, these findings probably aren't going to surprise you. By the end of that first week, 77% of participants stuck to their resolutions. That decreased to 55% by the end of the first month, and then to 43% by the, after three months, and then down to an abysmal 19% by the end of that study. For all intents and purposes, a 19% success rate would probably be considered a failure by most. So what were the reasons so many failed to keep the resolutions? Well, quoting from the article I read, lack of willpower or self-control is the top-sided reason for not following through. My take on that sounds like most people had trouble following through on their resolutions because there ended up being something more easy or more comfortable drawing them away from their goals. To put this uh, in perspective for our studies, the 81% of participants who did not complete their New Year's resolutions found themselves drifting from the very goals they themselves resolved to do. This temptation of drifting is no different for Christians. Though we resolve to look to Christ and exalt him, the temptation to drift toward the easier life and to settle into our comfort zone is admittedly something we all struggle with. The author of Hebrews addresses this issue of drifting by directing our gaze and our affections toward Christ. And over the past couple months, our time in Hebrews has given us the opportunity to consider the supremacy of Christ. Although we don't know who the author of this book is, we do know that this letter was written to Hebrew Christians who were tempted to, and I'll use the author's words here, drift away from the Christian faith. As Nathan discussed over the past couple of weeks, this theme of drifting is really what the author of Hebrews is attempting to address throughout this first chapter. In the first four verses of chapter 1, the author sets the table and explains who Jesus is. He is the Son. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe. He's made purification for sins, and he sits in the seat of honor at the right hand of the Father. The author does not hold back his punches here. He makes it abundantly clear. Jesus Christ is God. But in case that wasn't clear enough, the author takes us through verses 5 to 14, building 
an argument for Christ's supremacy over angels, highlighting everything he's already mentioned and taking parallels from the Old Testament to show readers that Jesus is no mere angel. And apologies if I sound like a broken record here, but he is the son. Look at verse 2 and the parallel in verse 5. He is due the inheritance of the firstborn. Look at the parallel in verse 2 and verse 6. He is the king. Parallels verse 3 and verse 8. And as we'll discuss today, he is our eternal and unchanging creator. Verse 2, the parallels you'll see are in 10 to 12. But before we even go there, we need to remind ourselves for what purpose the author is writing this. Drop down to the beginning of chapter 2, we learn why he's directing the reader's gaze toward Christ. Verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This problem of drifting is an issue we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament, and something the Hebrew Christian reader would have been really familiar with. And in an effort to combat this tendency, this waywardness, the Israelites are commanded to remember. This idea of remembering is scattered all throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses says to the Israelites, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, that place of slavery. Later in in Joshua, we see that the Israelites set up memorials to help them remember the Lord's faithfulness in leading them into the promised land. Unfortunately, we know how this story goes. The Israelites repeatedly fail to remember, only to drift away from God to do what's right in their own eyes. And sadly, this is still true for us. So often we forget about the faithfulness and goodness of Christ. In the last two years, we've moved through the ebbs and flow of the pandemic, and I'll be the first to admit how easy it's been to succumb to my fears rather than to remember that Christ is greater. Acts of racism and a flawed justice system has led us to despair and indifference rather than bringing us to a place of hope. Reminding one another that we still have Christ, that his rule is better, that his kingdom is worth seeking, that he was and is and will always be faithful to all of his promises. Again, going back to Deuteronomy 6, these words need to be on our hearts lest we forget. The author of Hebrews is taking care to remind readers to avoid drifting and to remember the supremacy of Christ, and he's doing so by using the words of the Old Testament. Like I mentioned before, all the verses from five, all the verses from five and on are quotes from the Old Testament scripture, including today's passage, verses 10 to 12. Let's jump into the text here. Follow along with me in your own Bibles or on the screens behind me. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. 
like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. This passage is a direct quote from Psalm 102 verses 25 to 27 where the psalmist is praying to the Lord out of despair. He comes face to face with his mortality. His enemies taunt him. But despite all this, he hopes in the Lord, understanding that the Lord's promises of salvation are as good as sure. If we look a few lines back to verse 12, the psalmist says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. Look at the psalmist's language and his confidence. He is absolutely certain. He remembers the Lord and his promises. The author of Hebrews transfers this certainty and applies it to Christ, which we'll dig into further in a moment. But some additional context we need to understand about this passage is that it's a continuation of the author's argument for Christ's supremacy over the angels. Notice the word and at the start. It's almost easier to read this by replacing the word and with that first line in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The author is showing us who Christ is and is highlighting attributes that are exclusive to Christ alone, bringing us to the main idea of this passage. The supremacy of Christ is made evident by him being the eternal and unchanging creator of all things. Again, the supremacy of Jesus Christ is made evident by him being the eternal and unchanging creator of all things. We'll unpack this in three sections. First, Christ is creator. Second, Christ is eternal. And lastly, Christ is unchanging. First point, Christ is creator. Looking at verse 10, there are two relationships that need to be considered when thinking about Christ as creator. The first is this horizontal relationship we see between the Father and the Son. It's no coincidence that the author of Hebrews is pulling this passage from Psalm 102. Any reader of this psalm would understand that the psalmist is addressing Lord, capital L-O-R-D, referring to Yahweh. Notice that the author of Hebrews has also applied that status of Yahweh to the Son. Look at that again. But of the Son, he says, you, Lord. Bold claim. But to the author, this is a given. At the beginning of this chapter, in verse 2, it says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This fact has been established. Jesus Christ is creator, just as much as God the Father is creator. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If Jesus Christ the Son is God, it stands that he, 
along with the father, shared the role of composer and conductor in the symphony of creation. The author of Hebrews is giving us an astonishing view of the son through the lens of the father. And what does the father see? He sees his beloved son whom, as Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I assure you, no angel shares in the position that Jesus Christ holds. The supremacy of Christ is made evident by his Father. But in wrestling with this thought of Christ the Creator and his relationship with the Father, it begs a second view to contemplate. This vertical relationship between the Creator and creation. Take a look again at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The author has already established that Jesus Christ, the Son, is creator. Take a look at the syntax of verse 10. Jesus, he is the subject, and creation is the object of his doing. If Jesus is not doing, there is no Grand Canyon or Mount Everest. There is no Sahara Desert or Great Barrier Reef. There is no you. There is no me. There is no angels. Fortunately for us, God spoke all things into being. Jesus laid the foundation of the earth and painted the heavens into existence. Not the angels. No. Angels can't lay claim to creation. They're messengers. They are purpose-created beings. And created beings need the creator in order to be. Therefore, it stands to reason that because we are dependent on the maker, the maker has authority over that which he has created, highlighting this idea of the vertical relationship between the creator and creation. Go back to that passage I just read in Philippians 2. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ's kingship is without question. All of creation, including angels, are to submit and worship their creator, Jesus Christ. Turn a few books over to the left to Colossians. Paul says in chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God, being the creator, has authority over that which he has created. We're also reminded of this at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, where Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When we acknowledge that Christ is creator, we submit ourselves to the notion that one 
Christ is God. And two, Christ has authority over all of creation, and this would include angels. Both of these points highlight his supremacy. But verse 10 also reminds us of another attribute of Christ, furthering the argument of the author that Jesus is indeed better than angels. Take note of that phrase, in the beginning. Highlight it or underline it because it's going to be important in our understanding of this morning's second point. Christ is eternal. Again, Christ is eternal. Now, I understand that the obvious verses to look to in this passage with regards to that idea are probably verses 11 and 12. However, the author of Hebrews is establishing who Jesus is in verse 10 to help us, the reader, better understand the metaphor that's presented in the rest of the passage. Notice how in verse 10 it says that Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Or another way of reading this, in the beginning, comma, Jesus laid the foundation of the earth. This is saying that Jesus was there at the beginning. What this is not saying is that this is the beginning of Jesus. Again, this is saying that Jesus was there at the beginning, not that he was that this is the beginning of Jesus. Let me give you an example of how this works. If you've ever made something, it's important that you understand that you making that object does not bring about your existence. If I make a guitar with my own hands, I pick the wood, I cut its shape, I structure its hollow interior, I attach the neck, I sand it down and apply a finish to it and throw on some strings, the beginning of the guitar is not the beginning of my life. No, I was there before it was created, and so it is with Christ. Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, which means to inform us that his creating in the beginning would suggest he was there before the beginning and is thus without beginning. How else do we know that? What, where else in, is this made known to us? Take a look at Psalm 90, verse 2. The psalmist says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Go back even further to Exodus 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asks God what to say to the Israelites if they ask him for the name of the God who has sent him, and God replies, I am who I am. Notice the tense of that. The great I am, not I was, or I had been, or I will be. No. He's continually present, which can only lead to one conclusion, that God is eternal. His rule and reign is eternal. Look ahead at Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Jesus Christ, he shares in this everlasting, forever attribute of eternality, which now brings us to the first half of verse 11. Follow along as I read. They will perish, but you remain. 
they, referring to the world, will perish, but you remain. To take us back to the main idea here, Jesus' eternality goes to show that he is superior even to the angels. Angels who are created beings and would thus, thus have a beginning and an end. Look at what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's contrasting the eternal nature of Christ to that of a limited and inevitably perishable piece of creation. Looking again at Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And now back to our passage, we learn that the heavens and the earth will perish. Please understand the immensity of this statement. The author of Hebrews is explaining to us that the world in its vastness is destined for destruction. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Gone. Like that. But not Christ. No. He will remain. He's everlasting. He was there before creation. He sustains creation, and he will continue to be there even after creation fades away. Like I quoted earlier from Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And at the end of verse 12 in today's passage, your years will have no end. If we are to pursue anything, it needs to be Christ in all of his glory because chasing anything else is futile and foolish and it only leads down a path of destruction. Christ is Eternal Christian, your inheritance is eternal life secured by Christ. Jesus Christ, fully God, came down and took on flesh to save us from a dying world. Hebrews 1.11 says it clearly, they will perish. This world as we know it is not eternal. It will wear and it will be destroyed. But the creator in his grace and mercy lived amongst creation, fully man, living the perfect life. He experienced hunger temptation, and pain the same way you and I do. And despite his innocence, people were blinded from seeing their true king. He was treated as a sinner, though he had never sinned. He was sentenced to die as a criminal for crimes he hadn't committed. But, oh, the grave could not hold them. Three days later, he arose from that tomb, victorious over death, into eternal life. And to what end? Well, Look back at the second half of verse 3 in Hebrews 1. After making purification for sins. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. If you look ahead to Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. From the very beginning, we were promised a Savior, and Jesus was and is the manifestation of God's promises fulfilled. For the past 30 minutes, I've talked about the world around us wearing down and and perishing, but know that the Lord does promise something better. Revelation 21, verse 5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things. Things new. A new heaven and a new earth will replace the old. And for those who believe, we will get to worship and praise Christ throughout eternity 
in his kingdom. We will behold Christ in all his glory and know that he reigns supreme over all things. Rejoice in that church. And for those of you, for those of you here who don't believe in Jesus, let me invite you to take some time to consider what you've heard this morning. Know that the eternal God who created the universe, who is eternal and unchanging, he knows you by name. And as the author says in Hebrew, Hebrews 1.9, he wants you to share in his love for righteousness and hatred for evil. A path without Christ is a one-way trip to death. And maybe it's harsh to say it that way, but it's the truth. And for me to say anything else only minimizes the reality that awaits your soul. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, a path with Christ leads to eternal life. You and I are sinners, and we need a solution for our brokenness. Jesus is that answer. And he calls us to believe in him, as he says in John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If this is something you want to learn more about, please come talk to me or anyone else you've seen up here, whoever brought you. I pray that these words would sink deep and take root in your hearts. Continuing down to the remainder of our passage this morning, starting at the second half of verse 11. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you'll roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. Here the author builds on this contrast between the temporal and uh, eroding condition of this world with that of Christ's immutability, or, in other words, how he is unchanging. The author explains to us that the world is like a tattered and worn coat that's been through too many cold and bitter winters. It's bound for wear and tear, but not Christ. Look at how the author juxtaposes the, the world and Christ. The world on one hand is bound to change and eventually perish. While Christ, on the other, he is the same and he will remain. Which brings us to our third and final point. Christ is unchanging. Christ is unchanging. So what does this mean that Christ is unchanging? Well, in, in, in an effort to unpack that, we'll focus on two attributes of God that support his immut- immutability. One, his perfection. And two, his faithfulness. His perfection and his faithfulness. In the church, we so often hear it said that God is perfect. Totally true. But honestly, its meaning can get lost on so many of us. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines perfect as having no mistakes or flaws. And while this is a good definition, it's certainly not holistic when applied to God. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
When we read that, it's true. God has no flaws. and But because he has no flaws, it's implied that he lacks nothing. And if he lacks nothing, he's complete. There is nothing that can further his perfection or add to it. Therefore, he has no need for change. In sports, whenever a team has won multiple championships in a short period of time, the word dynasty is applied to that team in an effort to express that that team's reign is ongoing. They are the team to beat. They have a near-perfect roster. There's no need to fix something that's not broken. However, what always, always ends up happening is the rest of the league realizes their own shortcomings. They realize they're lacking in their own pursuit of perfection. And so in an effort to dethrone that dynastic team, coaches and managers work to find players and personnel to outcompete and outdeliver the opposition. And as we've discussed, our world and everything in it, well, it's subject to change. And so too are the victors of a game. We are the ones that are lacking. Unless unless we are in Christ, we will always look to the world in our search for perfection in some form or fashion. We will be in a constant state of drifting towards something the world might consider better, whether that's a spouse the American dream, or that next promotion, or vacation. But our God, he's complete. He is without flaw and lacks nothing. So there's no need for him to change or adapt. Rejoice in that church. There is no one like our God. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Christ reigns Supreme and no one and nothing comes close in comparison to him, not even the angels. In his perfection, Christ is unchanging. Second, in order to understand God's unchangeability or immutability, we need to know that he's faithful. Christ remains true to his purposes and his promises. Let's pick up where we left off in Isaiah 46. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Do you hear the manner of certainty in which the Lord speaks to Isaiah? My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I will bring it to pass. I will do it. God leaves no room for doubt or change. He he doesn't hedge or give a half-hearted commitment. He is firm in conviction, completely steadfast in his resolve, giving us no reason to distrust the Lord. If he declares it, he will be faithful to it. Recall at the beginning of our series in Exodus, at the end of that second chapter, when the Israelites are looking for rescue from their enslavement, it says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You see, out of God's remembrance for his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, came 
salvation for the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 5, verses 3 to 4, Moses says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Here, Moses takes these two ideas we've discussed and and actually marries them. Our God is perfect, without iniquity. And in the same breath, Moses says that God is a God of faithfulness. To Moses, God's perfection and faithfulness are inseparable. You know, while the crashing of waves on beaches reshape the landscape day to day, the Lord is steadfast in his purposes. And though the winds of culture change from generation to generation, the Lord is still faithful. And even when the tiniest stream of water transforms into the deepest of canyons over thousands of years, the Lord is the same. Church, take comfort in this. The great I am does not change based on what laws get passed or struck. He doesn't change depending on who gets elected into office. And he does not change in the midst of a deadly pandemic. He isn't some passive being watching the world through a TV, clicking through lives at his own leisure, getting involved because he's bored. No. He is always active. And he's always at work. Philippians 2.13, Paul says, For It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is perfect and faithful in all that he says. Thus, he is unchanging. But despite knowing these truths, the author of Hebrews knows the temptation to drift. To the author of Hebrews, this truth is worth repeating. Turn to the end of this book, to chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. The author knows that this temptation to drift is what causes the Israelites to stumble time and time again. And he understands it's the same temptation that will seep into our own hearts. And... Maybe for our generation, it's not apparent in calling it drifting, but perhaps it's more relevant to call it distracted. Over the last couple months, how often have you found yourself on your phone or laptop mindlessly flipping through social media or shopping the most recent sales? I, I count myself as guilty of that. Or has your TV occupied more of your time, leading you to consider the things of this world as greater than the eternal and unchanging creator. Even though the author of Hebrews wrote this letter 2,000 years ago, its contents remain true to this day. So what does the author prescribe for these distractions or our tendency to drift? We'll look down at the first verse in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Three points of application out of this verse. First one, believe in Christ's supremacy. Believe in Christ's supremacy. These last couple of weeks, we've, dis- we've discussed 
Christ's superiority over the angels, but I can also guarantee you that Christ is better than any social media influencer you know. He's better than any piece of technology invented. He's better than, he's greater than the riches of this world. He's greater than any political party or leader. You see, influencers, they will make mistakes and will eventually fall out of favor. Technology will continue to improve year after year. The riches of this world are temporary, and political parties and leaders, well, they'll come and they'll go, but not Christ. He is supreme. He created the world, he sustains it, and he holds all things together. He will never change. Believe that he is the greater. And would that compel you to give yourself to him and to his purposes? Saturate yourself in his words. Go to him in prayer. and Serve the church with a glad heart. Second point of application. In your belief, in your belief, fix your gaze and affections on Christ. Living in D.C., many of us, if not all of us, lead busy and jam-packed lives. And recent events have not made this any easier as we've been bombarded by the need to make decisions we couldn't have imagined a few years ago. Mask or no mask. Vaccine or no vaccine, gather inside or outside, and all of a sudden you throw children into the mix and these issues just get amplified. Again, the world is an ever-changing place fraught with distractions. But like we've seen this morning, Christ is eternal and unchanging. He doesn't bend to the whims of the world. He is an anchor in the midst of the storm. He is the rock that we cling to. Hold fast to Christ as he holds fast to you. Final point of application, rejoice in our king and his supremacy. Rejoice in our king and his supremacy. In this morning's passage, the author of Hebrews has reminded us that the supremacy of Christ is made known by the fact that he is the eternal and unchanging creator of all things. He has no end and he is the same. So rejoice that our savior has come and will return. When the old passes away, and the new heaven and new earth are established, he will be seated on his throne, and everyone who believes the king, everyone who believes will worship the king into eternity. Christ is our hope. Rejoice in that truth, church. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and the ways it teaches us of how great and good you are. Would these words refresh our souls? Would they direct our gaze and help us to focus on the eternal and unchanging creator? Would the things of this world pale in comparison to the brightness and majesty of the sun who is the radiance of the glory of God? As we kick off this new year, I pray that our hope would be placed firmly in you and you alone. In your name we pray. Amen.